Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. Tamor, how are you doing this week? I'm not doing too bad. I'm pretty knackered for some reason. It's like 9pm on a Sunday. A pretty chill day. Just hanging out with a bunch of people. We had a little spa sesh here in the building. Nice. And then just been hanging. Bit of bit of work. Yeah, I think... So, look, here's the thing. I've, I'm tracking my glucose now. This morning, the wife injected me with a glucose tracker. Injected you with a glucose tracker? Yeah, basically. What's it's that? a little plastic disc that you, like, inject onto your arm. So I have, like, underneath stuck to my arm for the okay. next couple of weeks. Yeah. And it's going to track my glucose. And I have an app on my phone. And so every, every few hours, I'll, like, s- just, like, scan the thing. Just, like, put my phone next to it, contactless. And that it'll show a graph of my glucose levels over time. So you've been doing that as of this morning? As of this morning, yeah. Have you noticed any, any insights? Yes, I mean, they seem to be... My glucose levels, well, they seem to be mostly in the healthy range. Let's have a look. Um, so mostly in the healthy range. I can use my little medical degree to interpret the graph. Except they've dipped. They've, they, like, crashed. Wait, what's going on here? Wait, let me find a logbook. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Daily graph. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there, but basically... I mean, I think it has dipped below the healthy oh. since post-dinner. Hmm. So it, yeah, it dipped this afternoon, and then it like dipped below healthy just now, like, I don't know, a few minutes ago. Okay. I don't know what it means. So how often do you sample it? Or does the app... The, the, the thing the tracks thing samples it over time. And then it just syncs when you yeah, NFT exactly. your phone into yeah, it. Yeah, so you don't need to worry okay. about like, sampling. So, I mean, they're in sort of like the five to seven range so most day. Yeah, I mean, today they've mostly been within the healthy range. I think post, post-dinner they crashed... So what's the idea behind this? Is it that like you figure out what sort of foods are crashing your blood glucose because that's cause, that means heavy release of insulin, which is overall, overall bad for you? Um, I don't know too many of the details, but I think basically after I eat a meal, I feel like really tired and I just want to like zonk out on the couch. Okay. And like more so than you, like it's in the past like few months, it's gotten way worse than previously. I think like everyone feels that to some extent, right? You feel a bit sleepy after a heavy meal. But pretty much after most meals, I'll feel just this deep, just need to lie down. And like, it feels amazing when I do it. But it's, I, it seems like it's an abnormal level. Mm. So um, Lucia thinks I might be like pre-diabetic, which I'm racially predisposed to. And so that's why, that's why we're tracking this thing, to try and see what foods like make me feel that sort of tiredness, sonky feeling and what foods don't. Do you have private health insurance with your company? Yeah. Surely that comes with like one of those blood, all, all, all the blood tests every year kind of vibe. It might do actually, yeah. Like ours does. We use, we're with Vitality Health, okay. which is like, a, I think, a worse version of what you're with. Huh. And everyone on the team has been doing like the whole suite of blood tests once a really? year thing for free. Is that good? Uh, I mean, it might. What, what would it tell me? I don't know. Like, it won't tell me about what foods I'm good at. No, but I could tell you if there's anything like abnormal. Yeah, I should do that. Or like, you know, yeah, yeah. fairly trivial to. What did you find? Uh, my my results are coming in the next few days. Oh, really? But I did mine through Thriver rather than through the thingy bitchy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Oh, hello. Move goal achieved. You pass your move exercise goal. I just came back from a personal trainer session. One hour of traditional strength training. 505 active kilocalories. Average heart rate 122. Not bad. What's 122? Yeah. During the exercise? Yeah. Like it goes, it's sort of, sort of 100 to 150, 160 range, depending on what I'm doing. Yeah. If I'm really squeezing for like a deadlift or something, then yeah. it goes into, into the 150s, 160s. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's a good sesh. Nice. How's your week been? It's been pretty good. Can't even, can't remember what I've really done this week. Um, I'll, let me consult, consult the old calendar. 
So today I was at a little birthday picnic for some friends, which was nice. Oh, Monday. Monday was fun. Uh, me and my plus one went to the red carpet premiere for House of the Dragon, mm, the new yeah. Game of Thrones TV show. How was that? It was actually, it was, it was quite interesting. Uh, it was good. Um, the, the pilot episode of the TV show was sick. Yeah. So uh, me and the gal are looking forward to um, continuing. Yeah, continuing it and having it as like a little TV show that we watch together. So what's the idea behind these like red carpet premiere events? It's like publicity for the show or something? Yeah, it's basically publicity for the show. Okay. Um, so like Sky and now TV, mostly Sky, were have the rights to the show in the UK. Right. And so they put on this red carpet premiere and that means all the cast and stuff basically they invite a bunch of people to watch the first episode of the thing in one of the cinemas yeah so they had like uh, taken over leicester square basically right and had like tons and tons and tons of security yeah and they put out a red carpet and it's like you walk in through the red carpet through security and then there's like a little round kind of area where you walk along where you then have the walls that have like house of the dragon hbo sky okay. plastered over them and as people walk past the ones who are famous i.e the actors and actresses yeah. There's like press, press and stuff like being like, Emma, Matt, 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 Matt. And then like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. snapping, snapping, snapping away. There's a bunch of sort of TV stations as well there with their little microphones and yeah. all their reporters. And, you know, the only, the only actor who I, I, I recognized was Matt Smith oh, yeah. from Doctor Who fame. Yeah. So we saw him like two feet away from us. Sick. And we were like, should we try and get a selfie with Matt Smith? Um, decided like chickened out in the end. Because yeah, what was the thought process there? The thought process there was A, chickening out. <laughs> B, the thought process was, you know, Matt and I, were, we're both on the red carpet together. And it's like, if you happen to be backstage with John Legend, you, it would be a bit rude to ask for a, a selfie if you're both performing in the same concert, right? So like, you know, whereas if you saw him on the street, you'd be like, hey, John Legend, do you want to you, you get a selfie? So I felt like it, but, it would violate the, yeah. uh, the fact that we were both on the red carpet you're, together. Yeah, look, you're... Like, it, you're right. You're you're both in the red carpet. You're giant giants in the industry. The exactly. two of you. Yeah. Quite. You know, there's a, this is an industry event. There's there's professionalism that you need to have. Hundred percent. Yeah. 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 So because I'm a professional, yeah, <laughs> I did not get a selfie with Matt Smith. <laughs> I just surreptitiously took a photo of him <laughs> for my Instagram story with a little arrow. <laughs> Matt Smith. Um, and then so he was doing little like all of the actors and stuff. And then there was uh, I think Sky were like live streaming it for the TV thing. Yeah. Um, and so there was a big ass TV cameras there, and there was a host. So how many? How okay? So how yeah. many like how many guests are there for the re for the premiere thing? So they'd booked out two of the the, the two cinemas, so Cineworld and Odeon. Okay. Um, we had two screens. Two sc uh, I don't know if it was more than two screens. Well, I mean, there were at least one two screen screens. in each cinema. Yeah. Um, but we had a bit of a bit of a uh, a hustle, which is why it was somewhat stressful because me and the gal, uh, we actually had tickets in different cinemas. Hmm. Which because she got hers through because someone some other influencer dropped out and I was like hey can I can I bring my yeah, girl yeah, along yeah, yeah and they were like okay but you're in different different screens yeah so initially I was thinking we can probably get in and then sort of just sweet talk yeah, our way into you know just be like oh hey look really sorry you know can I can I sit with my girlfriend kind of thing and someone yeah. would want to swap swap seats with us turns out that like immediately on entrance they put you into two different categories depending on whether you were in Odeon or in Cineworld. Yeah. But we somehow managed to sneak into one of them. Then we got like a different colored, like black wristbands. The right. black wristbands were for Odeon and the red wristbands for Cineworld or something like that. But thankfully we both got black wristbands. Mm. And then we sort of had to do quite a lot of like confidence uh, uh, right, trickstering. Yeah. Uh, thankfully we ran into another influencer friend, Patricia Bright, who I had on the pod recently. And we were like, Patricia, help us out. We need to sneak into the cinema. to." Get yeah. And she was like, okay, what you got to do? You got to go for Odeon rather than Cineworld because there's less security there. Yeah. You've got to be really, really confident. Yeah. Um, 
and we were a little bit like uncertain. I I think because like the security people at this event actually probably don't know who anyone is, mm. and so if you walk with appropriate confidence yeah. into appropriate areas, they'll think you're a big. They'll, they'll think no you're one will the, bat an eyelid. A giant in the industry. <laughs> but because we were like, oh, you know, you know, there's the, you know, the House of the Dragon logo. Why don't we? Why don't we walk past? And we kind of looked yeah. around shiftily, and then yeah. and the security guard was like, all right, guys, move on, <laughs> move yeah. on, move on. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if we'd walked with the confidence of Matt Smith, they mm. probably would have been like, these guys are giants in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, pretty funny. Wait, so how many people are like, like what are the tiers? So there's like S tier, Matt Smith. Yeah. Like how many, how many Matt Smith level people are at this? And then like. Matt Smith was the only actor I recognized in the TV series. Okay. So but the whole cast of the show is there. The whole cast of the show was there. Yeah. They all came up on stage like just before the okay. first episode started. So what is that? Like 50 people or something? Oh, no. It was like the, the, main uh, cast. the top 10. Or okay. So. so like 10 people. And the two like showrunners. The guys who wrote the show hmm. are on stage. They give it a little bit like, hey, yeah, thank yeah, you so yeah. much for having us. You know, this is the f- fourth one of these we've done. We were in Germany. We were in France. We were in yeah, the US. Yeah. And this is the UK one. We're super excited. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Clap, clap, clap for the cast. Cast walks on. Matt Smith is there. The only one I recognize. Yeah. <laughs> um, everyone's clap, clap, clap. Everyone off the stage, off the stage, off the stage. The yeah. screening is about to start. Okay. So then how many the guests episode. are there? Like how many like... How many people like you were there? I mean, it was like two two cinema screens worth. So like probably a hundred people in ours because they were like there was like the the f- fancy seats. Rather so who are these the, other people? So is it like influencers? Yeah. So there were a load of um yeah a load of like I think journalists and stuff. A load of sort of Love Island esque people. Apparently we okay, sort of heard like on the grapevine. Oh yeah, British the, TV celebs. Yeah, British TV celebs. There were a bunch of people that looked as if they were like fashion influencers because they were dressed weird. Okay. And they all seemed to know each other and seemed to be very like kind of loud and clicky. So we kind of walked in and we were like, oh, these guys seem yeah, a bit did intimidating. You like, did you like network? Did you? Did oh, you? God, no. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Network. <laughs> I don't know. Just like meet, try and meet some cool people or something. Look, man, I'm, uh, I'm not that cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, so how, do, how do we find a way to sit in the same cinema? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm here, I'm here for the show. All right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's why I went. I went for the show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the, the first episode was actually, was actually really good. Um, I feel like it captured the magic of so you didn't, the series. So you didn't try and like meet any people? No. Why not? That seems unusual. Like you're at this like event, isn't it? Is that not the vibe that you're not meant to like mingle and like. I think it, it 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 might it might have been it it was more like you're lining up to watch a movie. You're being cinema. herded like you're being herded you're being herded like cattle into the into cinema. the thing. Yeah, and it was you watch like the thing. You get out. Yeah, I feel like the vibe was not like striking up conversation with a person who happens to be sitting next standing next to you in the queue. It's it, it sort of was. Oh, is this the queue to get photos? Yeah, but yeah. like everyone was there with someone else or with a group. So okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it was it was that kind of vibe. Okay, it was sort of like at a May ball. Where if you if you know someone, then there is like an in hmm. to like have a bit of a chat. Right, right. But like you wouldn't just randomly spontaneously decide to right. go up to a group and be like, hey. It's not like there's just a room with drinks and canopies. No, no, no. It wasn't like a walk around type thing. Okay. It was very much being herded like cattle. Yeah. Uh, taking selfies along the way. And hmm. good experience overall. Interesting stuff. Yeah, that sounds cool. So that was Monday. Unique experience. And what did Tuesday hold? What did Tuesday hold? Who knows? I think Tuesday was a writing day. We can start my calendar. Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me bring up my tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, my delivery is on the way as well. How close is it? Oh, it's still far away. Um, oh, I went to the uh, uh, the ancient baths of London on Tuesday. That was a day off. Day I've work. been getting Instagram ads for this. Air ancient baths. Yeah. Of it's really good. What is it? It's a spa, right? Yeah. It's really nice. good. Yeah, it's good vibes. Is it actually like the ancient baths of London? It's like a... I thought it looked like it a bit It's fake. like a 1800s house that's been converted into like baths. It looked pretty legit. Okay. Not so as you're, legit you're, as like the Roman baths of 
buff. So, so are you are you bathing in like the old thing, or is it like they have like I don't know one square meter of old foundation in the building under glass, and then they have a normal spa? Like, what's the sitch? It's sort of like the walls are very sort of exposed brick and like crumbly and stuff. Like you would expect ruins to look okay, like. Yeah. But obviously the pools and stuff are like really nice, right? And appropriately heated and stuff. So that was good. Wednesday was a book writing day and a YouTuber Academy debrief day. Thursday was filming day. Friday was, oh, interview on the podcast with Louise Perry. Mm. How did uh, that go? Famous uh, author who famously wrote uh, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, which we discussed on the pod a few months ago now. Uh, yeah, it was it was good. It was interesting. Yeah. When's it being released? Uh, I don't know. Probably in the next season of the pod. I Next know. season? Yeah. How long is that? How long is that? Know, a few months, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, we're very far ahead in terms of filming for the main pod. Yeah. I mean, sorry, for the secondary pod. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. mate. The side pod. The side pod, exactly. And then we uh, in in the evening on Friday was, was great. We, we had a meeting with this company called Genflow. Oh, yeah. Across them. <laughs> yeah, I know. Genflow used to be causal customers, mate. What, really? Yeah. It used to be. Are they used not anymore? Yeah, no, they churned. Why? I remember I... I um, yeah, I, I closed the Genflow deal last year. I think oh, they yeah, were one was, of our were, very early customers. I don't think we put them on our website. Okay. Uh, yeah, probably like May or June last year. Yup. Chatted to their finance guy. Got them excited about Causal. Um, yeah, they do like influencer marketing stuff. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, I remember I built him like, I did some sick on the fly modeling for like how they might forecast their revenue yeah. in terms of like, oh, okay. So you probably have like a list of, you know, influencers and the size of their following and all this kind of stuff. Hold, hold like, that thought. I need to grab my takeaway. All right. Got my little takeaway from Piri Piri. Nice. Where were we? We're talking about Genflow. Anyway, yeah. Genflow yeah. early calls a customer last year. I think our pricing at the time was like $500 a month or something. Um, yeah. I think basically what happened with them is that the guy got, we managed to get the guy excited about causal and about the possibilities, but then we never ended up getting them fully on board because, but I think they basically had like one finance guy. So he had lots of different responsibilities. The causal thing was just like one thing of, out of many things on his plate. Uh, and the company is like definitely on the smaller side. So we, we wouldn't really try and sell to Genflow mm. today, but it was, um, yeah, good good to get them as an early customer back in the day. Good, nice. Some good learnings. Yeah. Anyway, Genflow. Yeah, we had a sort of meeting with them. Um, met with the founder, Sean, who we spoke with on Zoom call. Uh, weirdly, uh, so when I interviewed Grace Beverly on the pod, on, on the secondary pod, uh, she really recommended Genflow because she'd been working with them from back in the day. And she was like their original client. Oh, cool. And they sort of grew together for her app Shreddy. And then... Another chap who I interviewed on the podcast called uh, Iman Gazi. He was like also worked for Genflow back in like 2015 when he was like a 17 year old. Okay. Um, and knew the founder. Um, and so we had these two like links to the company. And so Grace kindly introduced us and we, we spoke to the founder and hung out at their offices for a bit. They're really cool. They do like really high quality. They basically make high quality products mm. and work with influencers to so, so yeah, they do like Logan Paul's Maverick line of clothing. Yeah. They do sort of... Yeah, like yeah, yeah. So I, sick, I, like... I remember at the time, he said, yeah, I remember they had just... I think they'd like just gotten Logan Paul on board or something. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they've, they, they, they do the Maverick clothing line. They've Like Anthony Joshua, they've made him some like boxing gloves, which were really sick. Like they had them out on the table and they look super, super high quality. Oh, well, nice. They've got these other sort of, sort of million to three million subscriber YouTubers in the fashion a fashion space, sort of high-end dresses and stuff. So they, mm. they, they seem to have like manufacturing 
capability for okay, like all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. And they've made, you know, for Shreddy, for example, supplements and nutrition bars and things which yeah. are on sale in Superdrug and Holland and Barrett and stuff. Yeah. And they take like a cut of it. Yeah. It's like a ref share type type situation. So we were talking to them about the possibility of what would kind of a brand that we make look like. Yeah. And I think before chatting to them, I always had like, I, I kept my ambitions around building a brand fairly low because I thought, oh, you know, my whole jam is teaching. It would yeah. be cool to have a physical products business one day, but like I can't be asked to deal with all yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But now that I saw that these guys were really good at dealing with all the faff, mm. uh, then it sort of gave me permission to dream a little bigger. Okay. Um, and so we were just sort of riffing on ideas about what would a kind of, uh, unsurprisingly, productivity focused mm. brand look like. So would it be clothing or would it be like notebooks and stuff? Because you no, have some notebooks. Yeah, we have some notebooks, which was a bit of an experiment in the world of, of physical products. It would be like, so the, the vision is as follows. Here it is, here it is. Okay. This is uh, gonna be ch changing the world. Okay, yeah. Uh, so you know desk setups. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, if you look at any desk setup video on YouTube, there are a handful of companies that have their products and desk setup videos. Okay. Apple is number one. Yeah. Uh, Logitech, yeah. number two. Grovemade is like a bit sort of monitor stands and, and yeah. stuff. Uh, every YouTuber, every desk setup person has the Kanto U2, U2 white speakers. Uh, the, oh, the, really? the, okay. There's like a few staples mm. that are, you know, felt, gray felt mouse, mouse yeah. desk pad, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, so you can get it. You can make it your own computer peripheral. Yeah. So we want to basically be make a brand that is like a productivity arsenal almost okay of like could we make our sort of the world's best mechanical keyboard for example for productivity okay. could we make a better version of the logitech mx master 3 mouse which right, is like so the gold you, standard how could we make like how would genflow like produce a better mouse than logitech i don't know about better mouse than logitech but like they have like factories in china and in like pakistan and stuff where lots of manufacturing is done they have yeah, they they basically uh, so they can look so understood yeah. they can produce stuff. Yeah. My my assumption with all of these things would be like, look, if I want to buy, like, if I want to support Logan Paul and he has some cool clothes, I'll buy the Maverick clothing line. Sure. If I want to buy like the best T-shirt, mm. I would probably not look to Logan Paul for that. So what do you mean about like the best mechanical okay, keyboard, so the best lot better than the Logitech MX Master or whatever, like? So that's like version two of the plan. <laughs> version one of the plan would... Okay, so the, there's, there's things that are easy to make and things that are hard to make. Okay. The things that are easy to make are things like, can we make our own uh, sort of everyday carry bag, for example? Kind of like Peter McKinnon worked okay, with yeah. Nomatic to make a camera bag. Could we do that, but like basically make a high-end bag that's as high quality as like Peak Design, for example, okay. but not a camera bag. So yeah. more like laptop bag for the digital okay, that nomad. that kind of thing, yeah. Could we make... Yeah, just sort of the equivalent of a Leuchtturm 1917 notebook, hmm. which is, again, an, a fairly easy product. Could we make, like, monitor thingies or, like, just basically normal desk accessories, Yeah, which is, like, the easy stuff. Okay, yeah. Then there's the hard stuff, which is keyboard and mouse and things like that. Yeah. Uh, generally, so I think keyboard is the one that would probably come first. Like, mouse, I, I imagine, would, would actually be quite hard. But keyboard, there is a whole industry of factories in China that manufacture mechanical keyboards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so really it's about just figuring out which one we want yeah. and almost kind of like white labeling it, yeah, but like yeah, not yeah. quite white labeling, also figuring out like how do we change the mold and how do we make it really good. Yeah, so my assumption with this kind of stuff was that it would basically be like some existing, like, you know, good quality thing that's mm. white labeled and maybe has some small customizations. Is that 
the right way to think about it. That's that's one way of doing it. So as, essentially what they were saying is that there's two ways of making products. Number one, make it from scratch. Number two, take a template of something that already exists and yeah. just modify it. Yeah. And so at the moment, we're exploring both options for all of the things that we're potentially wanting to do. Yeah. Um, but it feels kind of exciting. Like, what if we actually could make a brand that had genuinely good products like a bag and a keyboard and a notebook and a mouse and yeah sort of you could have a you know the the bundle for students or the bundle for creators or the bundle for tech bros or yeah you know things like that it feels like a, a fun little side hustle to to double with nice um so that that feels feels quite exciting and it's like weird because yeah prior to having that meeting with genflow it was it was like very impressive what they've done for other creators yeah and so it's like, oh, wow, just suddenly unlocks the ability to actually make stuff and it'd be actually good. Yeah. Cool. Let's, let's you know. Yeah. See, see how we can do. Yeah. That's pretty neat. So that's been my week. And our team is on a summer sabbatical now. Oh, yeah? So for the next week, everyone's off work. So what are you, are you off work? I, I'm never off work. <laughs> Why don't you take it off work? Uh, you know, my life is my work, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But also... Uh, book deadlines are approaching and so I actually want to make I'm like oh sick the, can, the calendar is free I can actually now, make yeah. some progress on the book now yeah yeah. so that's what I'm planning to do for the next next seven days or so nice do we have a topic for this week are we going to talk about anything specific or? I read an interesting book recently oh is this the one we're not allowed to talk about yeah we're not going to get into it but I'll, I'll it's called um, oh another starting, exciting news I started bullet journaling as well yeah what's bullet journaling bullet journaling is a method of journaling <laughs> And we use bullet points. Um, now, basically, the idea is that uh, you take a blank notebook and you use um, a specific method to basically organize your life Yeah. based on a blank notebook. And so, for example, at the start of the notebook, you write out uh, the calendar for the rest of the year. Okay. And then every month, you write out, you literally draw out the calendar for the month. Yeah. And then any major events that are happening in the year, you transfer to your monthly calendar yeah. And then at the start of every month, you do like a little brain dump of stuff. And then the idea is that each day you have a little daily log. Yeah. And it's got like, you know, there's a, there's a book called The Bullet Journal Method. Uh, basically, there's like a standard notation system for noting down notes and tasks and stuff and crossing things off. Yeah. And it's basically just a very modular system that you can adapt to how, however you work. But based on the idea that you don't need to set things up ahead of time, you literally just use a blank notebook. Okay. Yeah. And so today, this morning, uh, I watched a... So last night I watched a Pickup Limes video. Great YouTube channel. Um, what about, is it? What's uh, Pickup Limes? Uh, it's a YouTube channel run by this gal called Sadia, which is sort of very wholesome kind of vibes, vegan food, recipes, mindfulness. Uh, it's nothing to do with picking up. Pick up. Correct. <laughs> okay, yes. Right. It's nothing oh, yeah, to do that, with... Oh yeah, that's my bad. That yeah, my yeah, bad. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Pickup Limes. Um, and so she had a video from like four years ago about her minimalist bullet journaling method. Okay. So I watched that and I was like, oh, this is actually quite good. Yeah. And so I spent a couple of hours this morning, like drawing out the calendar for the rest of the year. And there's something like surprisingly nice about actually physically writing the months down and then the dates down. Yeah. Inside. Physical visualization. Yeah, yeah. Really appreciate that sort of the value of a day. Yeah. And yeah, then putting yeah. events, I'd be like, oh, so I'm going to, you know, Greece this time in September and then going to that mm. place in October, then November. Oh, it's a trip to Singapore in November. Oh, I haven't got anything planned in December. Cool. And it's like you see your life and sort of like, oh, I should probably book a holiday there sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, that I, man, I I think maybe I talked about this on the pod. I, I visited a friend's like place in Germany a few months ago and his dad had the, like a big whiteboard in his study and across the top basically had like all the months and it basically spanned like three years or something. Mm. Um, and he kind of pen, had sort of penned in some, you know, milestones and things like that. I was like, wow, it's actually pretty useful to be able to see like three years in terms of months in yeah. one like thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because with Google Calendar, like I just yeah, you're stuck in your view. weekly view. I'm yeah, just, I'm stuck in the week view, bruv. Exactly, mate. Man. And then the month view doesn't quite make sense because then it's sort of a little bit, and you yeah, you can't, can't quite dots, appreciate it. Like, oh. The year view it just sort of colors things. It's like yeah. yeah, surprisingly useful to have like a single sheet or two sheets that just have the whole year, so you can just get a bit more zoom out, zoomed out stock of your life. Right. Yeah. So that's been good. Um, already, I feel like I've made progress on a few things that I wanted to make progress on um, just by virtue of, of having that thing. So nice. Yeah. Anyway, book highlights. You, you were oh, yeah. So I recently, so the book that we won't talk about is a book called um, a book called A Return to Modesty, Discovering <laughs> the Lost Virtue by Wendy Shalit. My God. Controversial. Um, yeah, a really good book. It's it's kind of like the Sexual Revolution book, but written in 1997. Okay. Um, yeah, really interesting. Anyway, the book that I recently finished um, after a long time is a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Oh, I started listening to that by on, Carl on, Truman. on the Audible. Um, what do you think so far? Uh, it's interesting so far, yeah. I feel like there's so much stuff in it. It's, 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 it's very it, dense. There's a, it's very dense. It is, yeah, somewhat academic. He has written a shorter version of the book. Basically, he wrote this, he wrote this book, I don't know, a five to ten years ago or something um and then someone convinced him to write a shorter almost not a summary version like it is it is a book in its own right but probably like half the length so like 200 pages rather than 400 pages a, a bit less dense as it called strange new world um by carl truman uh anyway rise and triumph of the modern self um the the premise of the book is to basically trace the sort of intellectual history of the the current societal narratives um around what it means to be an individual and identity and all this kind of stuff um he, he starts the book in a really interesting way um he, he says the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful right the statement is i am a woman trapped in a man's body um so the book is kind of exploring like um what's the intellectual kind of uh history of this being a coherent and meaningful statement uh because you know 300 years ago um no one really understood what this means um, but now that we understand what this means um, and so he says my grandfather died in 1994 less than 30 years ago and yet had he ever heard that sentence uttered in his presence i have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish and yet today it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful um but so significant that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, um, or subject to uh, some irrational phobia. Um, and those who think of it as meaningful are not restricted to the veterans of college seminars on queer theory or French post-structuralism. They are ordinary people uh, with little or no direct knowledge of the critical postmodern philosophies um, whose advocates swagger along the corridors of our most hallowed uh, senses of learning. Um, and yet that sentence carries with it a world of metaphysical assumptions. Um, it touches on the connection between the mind and the body, um, given, the, given the priority it grants to inner conviction over biological reality, uh, it separates gender from sex, um, given that it drives the wedge between chromosomes and how society defines being a man or woman, um, it's, in, in its political connection to homosexuality and lesbianism, uh, it rests on the notions of civil rights and uh, of individual liberty. Um, in short, to move from the commonplace thinking of my grandfather's world to that of today demands a host of key shifts in popular beliefs in these and other areas. It is the story of these shifts, um, or perhaps better, the, of the background to these shifts that I seek to address. 
um, in subsequent chapters. Uh, and so what he's basically the, you know, the, the, the point of the book is to say that, you know, things that we now, you know, that society now broadly takes for granted um, in terms of understanding of sort of gender identity and all this kind of stuff. This has been a very rapid change, right? Like even 10, 20 years ago, like this would, this would not be, this would not be something people understood. People wouldn't think in this way. And now it seems intuitive to think in this way. Yeah. It's, it's such a rapid shift. And like even 10 years ago when we were in school, that would have been a weird thing to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the, it wouldn't. It was not at all part of the cultural, like norm. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Yeah. So there's been this very rapid shift, and the 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 point of his book is to basically say, look, yes, it has felt like a very rapid shift, but the sort of intellectual root, sort of seeds for this shift had been had started being sowed like 200 years ago, uh, with all these various thinkers and so on, mm. and over the last hundred years even. And he kind of like maps out his sort of analysis of how we got to this place where a sentence that is in, intuitive intuitive and, and sort of uh, coherent um, to mo most people, uh, you know, of let's say our, our generation today, um, you know, that, that's a sentence that, is, that, that would be meaningful to most people of our generation today. And, and, and you don't have to have like studied some, you know, this is not like a sort of intellectual thing. It is an intuitive thing. Um, that same sentence would not be meaningful to his grandfather who only died like 30 years ago or something. Um, and so like what, what, what's actually happened in that time. Um, so that's kind of the premise of the book. And so it kind of charts out this, this path over the past couple of hundred years of various people right. who've proposed various ideas that um, culminate in sort of where we are today. Uh, and so maybe I can kind of go through. Please. I'm going to eat my chicken and rice while you, while you go through things. Some, I mean, look, it's a very dense, but yeah, I mean, it's on my to-do list to kind of sit down spend a few hours, like, consolidating my highlights making notes summarizing because i think it's it is such an interesting book um and it's very long so i'll just read out some highlights it's not it's not going to be that coherent <laughs> or intuitive uh cool so highlight number one at the heart of this book lies a basic conviction the so-called sexual revolution of the last 60 years culminating in its latest triumph uh, the normalization of transgenderism cannot be properly understood until it is set within the context of a much broader transformation in how society understands the nature of human selfhood. Yeah. But human selfhood. Um, really? I don't know. I'd find it hard. I have a hard time defining it, but just like what it means to be a person, what it means to have a sense of identity and self and stuff, you know, things like that. Cool. Um, yeah, so I started listening to it on Audible. I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. And then he started going into, the, it, it just started to get very dense. And I was like, okay, this is the sort of thing that I actually need to, kind of wrap my head around and almost take notes on while going through it. But I don't know if I can it's just... Worth, like, it's, just... Worth, it's worth plowing through. Like, you're not going to remember every single name. You're not going to remember everything. But, like, the, the broad strokes are pretty interesting. So what what are the broad strokes? Can you can you remember, like... Um, yeah, I mean, he, he kind of... Yeah, so let me... Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of this... A bunch of the stuff he talks about is um, the same stuff that Louise Perry talks about in um, The Case Against Sexual Revolution, um, particularly around sexual disenchantment and how, like... Um, yeah, the idea that sort of sex has no inherent meaning and stuff, and what kind of where this idea comes from. So we'll get we'll get to there in a sec. Uh, yeah, just some highlights. So it is also evident in the artifacts of popular culture. Um, I think what what he's talking about, sexual disenchantment, maybe or uh, 
Okay, look, I'm just going to read out a bunch of highlights. This is not going to be incredibly sure. coherent. Go for it. We're gonna, we can always coherentify yeah. it in a future episode. It is also evident in the artifacts of popular culture. No one today needs to be told that a movie with the title The 40-Year-Old Virgin is a comedy. The very idea of someone reaching the age of 40 with no experience of sexual intercourse is inherently comic because of the value society now places on sex. To be sexually inactive is to be a less than whole person, to be obviously unfulfilled or weird. Um, the, the old sexual codes of celibacy outside marriage and chastity within it are considered ridiculous and oppressive and the a- advocates wicked or stupid or both. Mm. So a, bit, a big, a big thing, a big, like a big, like part of the sort of, you know, a big o- sort of article of faith almost is that like your, your sexuality is intrinsically linked to like your selfhood, you know, that like, you know, that, like sex and sexuality is like. It's like a really fundamental part of, of selfhood. Yeah, and if you deny someone's sexuality there or deny them the ability to have sex, that's like super oppressive and super like bad. Right, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I remember being like, when I first came across the 40-year-old virgin, I mean, it, was, it would have been when we were in secondary school. I was kind of surprised. Yeah. Because in my mind, it was like... Yeah, there's probably a bunch of 40-year-old virgins. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, didn't, it didn't seem like that, like... Mm. <laughs> difficult uh a concept or like oh like i I, yeah i just i just remember being slightly baffled as to why Uh, that was the title of the film right right um yeah so another thing another thing he talks about is um the sort of prioritization of the of an individual's inner psychology you know one's sort of feelings or intuitions to give us a sense of who we are and like what the purpose of our lives are and things like that um uh just a sec Oh, okay, another interesting. To return to my earlier statement, that the sexual revolution is a manifestation of a much deeper and wider revolution in what it means to be a self. My basic point should now be clear. The changes we have witnessed in the content and significance of sexual codes since the 1960s are symptomatic of deeper changes in how we think about the purpose of life, the meaning of happiness, and what actually constitutes people's sense of who they are and what they are for. The sexual revolution did not cause the sexual revolution, nor did technology, such as the pill or the internet. Those things may have facilitated it, but its causes lie much deeper in the changes in what it means to be an authentic, fulfilled human self. And those changes stretch back well before the swinging 60s. Um, so the swinging 60s, I think, is m- most people's kind of like starting point of like the, the sort of the sexual revolution um, and the change in, in sexual norms. Mm. Uh, another highlight. Those who hold to grand schemes of reality can all tend to tend this way. Uh, wait, sorry, what is it? Mm. So he says, um, the Christian might. Uh, so when we're talking about like, I think he's just talking about like explanations in general. Like, what does it mean? to come up with an explanation for the sexual revolution, right? Um, and he, he, he talks about... Um, um, okay, no, that wasn't going to be that interesting. Um, so it sounds like the chap is basically saying that to get to the point where we are we are now at, we've had a fundamental shift in what what it means and how we how we consider the self. Yeah. And this is not just... And, and, and for example, the sexual, the, the, the sexual um, revolution of the 1960s and beyond was also one of the one of the data points along that journey yeah but that journey which, had actually for been which going the groundwork for, had been laid for a long time yeah so what is yeah. said groundwork that he yeah, yeah 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 so let's let's start, again this is going to require like a lot of scrolling and stopping in the right place to see like um so he, he talks about he talks about this idea of um the social imaginary it's kind of like our shared like our shared fantasy world that we're all living in the social imaginary um it says uh while sex may be presented today as little more than a recreational activity, 
Sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. That is a profound claim that is arguably unprecedented in history. How that situation comes to be is a long and complicated story, and I can address only a few of the most salient aspects of the relevant narrative in a single volume. Um, before I do that, he says I'll set forth a number of basic theoretical concepts that provide a framework uh, or principles to kind of structure the events and the personalities. Um, and so he talks about kind of the rise of modernity, and he mentions a few people um, whose writings he's going to kind of look at. Charles Taylor is a philosopher, Philip Reef, who's a sociologist, and Alistair McIntyre, who's a um, philosopher of ethics. Uh, yeah, so social imaginary. So he talks about this idea of there being uh, a social imaginary, uh, which is, yeah, kind of like the shared fantasy world that we're all living in. So in some, the social imaginary is the way people think about the world, how they imagine it to be, how they act intuitively in relation to it. Um, though that is emphatically, emphatically not to make the social imaginary simply into a set of identifiable ideas. It is the totality of the way we look at the world to make sense of it and to make sense of our behavior within it. This is a very helpful concept precisely because it takes account of the fact that the way we think about many things is not grounded in a self-conscious belief in a particular theory of the world to which we have committed ourselves. We live our lives in a more intuitive fashion than that. So it's basically saying like, look, we're just going about our lives. You know, most of our beliefs, we just have these beliefs. They feel intuitive. They're in the water. We've come, we're swimming in it, man. We're just like swimming in it. If you ask someone like, what is the, you know why why do you believe this thing what is like the root of this thing you know we do not have a, a list of the like sort of tenets of faith of modernity or whatever where it's like i believe this i believe that you know sure you we're just like swimming in this stuff and intuitively making our way around the world and making sense of it and and then sort of shaping our understanding okay. of it hmm. right yeah the whole uh, the rider and the elephant metaphor i guess what's that uh something that jonathan Haidt talks about a lot like how we are an elephant and we're with the rider on top of it. And the yeah. elephant operates on instinct and intuitively makes decisions yeah, about things yeah, as to yeah. why yeah, exactly, incest yeah. is bad. And the rider then post hoc rationalizes those things, thinking that the, the, the rider is that all rational and stuff, but actually we're just kind of going with... Yeah, so, yeah, so you know, it's basically, yeah, I guess, it's related to this metaphor in some way, where, like, you know, for, like, most of the stuff that we that makes up our social imaginary, there there is no rider. There's no there's no rider element. We're just kind of in the water. Um, we might perhaps say that looked at from this angle, the social imaginary is a matter of intuitive social taste, and the question of how the tastes and intuitions of the general public are formed is the question of how the social imaginary comes to take the shape it does. Um, another um, yeah, another element that he wants to take from this Charles Taylor guy is um, the relationship between something called mimesis and another thing called poesis, okay? Um, a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. Poesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Um, so... It's kind of the, the difference between sort of seeing the world as like, hey, kind of the world is this sort of fixed thing. We conform to the world. We have to like figure out like what thing, what things are, what things mean, what things are supposed to mean, etc. Um, yeah, is he, is he he kind of makes a point that like, you know, in in the past people would have lived much more um, mimetically. I don't think this is the same use of the word mimetic as like the tech bros were talking about today. Um, but in the past, like we would, you know, the world would have sort of shaped us a lot more. Like we, we were subject to the seasons and 
nature and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and so the way our mind would, you know, just like the, the, our general approach to life would be one of like, hey, the world is fixed and we, we are navigating through the world. Um, but with technology, you know, like we don't honestly like, I don't think about the seasons, right? Like we don't, we don't, our mindset. Yeah, right? if someone like, says mangoes are not in season, I'm like, what the hell what, are you talking about? Why the hell are mangoes not in season? I have mangoes whenever I bloody want, mate. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, yeah. it, it seems it seems nuts that you'd, you'd be subject to like nature yeah. in that way. With the whims of Mother Nature. Right? And and he's, well, Charles Saylor and then this guy are kind of making the point that like, as technology has progressed, then like, as we have stopped becoming like subject to nature in this way, um, it's kind of also affected our mindset in terms of like, actually, yeah, I, I should have mangoes every day of the year, you know, kind of thing. Like, why, why, why not? Like, I can have mangoes whenever I want, <laughs> you know? Um, so he says, I could go on, but the point is clear. Whether we consider certain innovations to be good or bad, technology affects in profound ways how we think about the world and imagine our place in it. To, today's world is not the objectively authoritative place that it was 800 years ago. We think of it much more as a case of raw material that we can manipulate by our own power to our own purposes. So I thought that was an interesting point. Mm. Um, we all live in uh, a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that, that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we need to necessarily conform ourselves uh, mm. to or passively accept. Self-creation is a routine part of our modern social imaginary. Yeah, sure. Um, Just a point on this. So one thing that... Excuse me. Um, I've been recently rereading uh, The Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson. Sick series of books. Um, I'm now in book three, Oathbringer, for the reread. But one of the things that's struck me is that reading fiction like that has actually given me a far greater appreciation of stuff in the world. And you know, people always say, oh, reading fiction like helps you empathize more and stuff. I don't feel like it's done much in the way of that. But I feel like, like for example, in this world that Brandon Sanderson creates in the Stormlight Archive series, there is this sort of force of nature called high storms. Okay. And it's like every few weeks there is a high storm. Yeah. And it's just like part of the world. And part of the world building of the books is that high storms are just a fact of life. And yeah. It's just a thing. And so you'd get all these little things of like how there are professions designed to predict the next storm. Yeah. How like instead of saying north and south, people say leeward and stormward or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Be like, oh, the leeward side of the house. Yeah. And like in reference to the high storms, be like, oh, hang on, this thing happened, which meant the high storm was late. Therefore, there's, there's all the like trade routes are completely disrupted, like yeah. famine is going to happen. It's like there's all these things that happen yeah. because of this force of nature, the high storm that comes about yeah. once in a while. And it's kind of as I'm rereading it in particular, while also having my mind on like reading, like listening to this book and the sexual revolution stuff, it's sort of making things slot into place because like that would have been how our ancestors lived thinking about like the weather and like the monsoon season and right. stuff. And there are still people, you know, in parts of the world where yeah. agriculture is important, where that's a thing. But I think also socially, like one of the things that Sanderson is good at is creating these sort of cultures within, within these worlds. So um, again, in the Stormlight Archive series, one thing that women have to do once they hit the age of puberty is cover up their left hand. Okay. It's called their safe hand. And and if they're particularly sort of noble and uh, high born, they would cover it with like a long sleeve. Okay. Like the sleeve of their dress would be long. Hmm. If they're particularly a commoner, they'd cover it, cover it up with like a glove. Okay. Um, and if a man were to see a woman without with their safe hand uncovered, it's like being practically naked and sort of okay, the woman's yeah. going to blush and the man's going to feel, oh my God. Yeah. 
And this is, again, just like a small little thing that permeates throughout the whole thing. Mm. And then how people in other cultures, when they come to the uh, Alethi kingdoms, yeah. always a bit confused. It's like, what the hell? Is this safe hand stuff? Like, what's, what's yeah, going on there? Yeah, yeah. So weird. Similarly, yeah. around like religion and religious ideas. And I've never quite appreciated this stuff, really, other than and it, sort of having, so, like, over the, over the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to this. I've been reading The Case Against Sexual Revolution. And when I feel like it, I've also been listening to the Stormlight Archive series. And yeah. it, it sort of feels like a commentary on life oh, nice. is happening yeah, yeah, like yeah. concurrently. Like societies and stuff, yeah. Similarly, like, again, on a, a bit of a tangent, uh, the field of politics. Mm. Like, government politics. I remember when people were picking A-levels. Yeah. I was always a bit, like, baffled. Like, why the hell are people studying politics? Like, yeah. who gives a toss about politics? Like, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. And it's like, in my mind, politics was what are politicians doing on, on, on the television? Okay, yeah. And like that thing that the uncles discuss at parties and things. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, who, who, like, why, why would you, why yeah, do you care about yeah. politics? But like, and I, I, I only really had this realization today as I was listening to a passage from Oathbringer around like what politics actually is. Mm. And it was like, you know, uh, Gav- King Gavilar is like on a crusade and is trying to unify unify the kingdoms. And yeah, he's doing yeah. it through blood, bloodlust and conquest. And his, his brother Dalinar is like the Blackthorn and is like kind of conquering everyone with the sword and all that jazz. And then the brother's like, all right, bro, we've conquered all these kingdoms, but like there com- comes a point where we now have to rule these people that we now, are, you know, I'm, I'm now the king. Yeah. And therefore we need diplomacy and we need politics and we need trade. And... The brother's like, nah, screw it. We just need to conquest, like, you know, spread by the sword, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, no, 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 like, come on. Like, we've, we've done all the conquesting we can. Like, it's, it's now about diplomacy and politics. Mm. And so that made something click in my mind of like, this mm. is what politics That's is. That's quite interesting, yeah. Politics is like how you run a country, how yeah. you run a state, how you assemble a group of people. And I guess on a small scale, assembling a group of people to do a thing is management right. <laughs> or business. And on a grander level, sort of assembling a group of people to appropriately run society is politics mm. and government. And I just had this realization almost. It's like I've never quite understood what politics actually is and why people care about it. Oh, okay, yeah. But now yeah. seeing it in a con- oh, right. Once, once, once you have people together in a nation, I, yeah. I guess people who played like Age of Empires and stuff. Yeah. And then similarly seeing like, uh, you know, the, the the idea of like parks and recreation. Mm. Like if you play a board game, like a board game like Through the Ages, mm. there are culture cards like the library and yeah, yeah, yeah. the theater and yeah, the cinema like, and, and yeah. stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah. Culture is like part of society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all, I feel like it's all slotting into this sort of uh, unified theory of like how the world works, mm. which I guess is what something like a book like Sapiens actually tackles. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, but I just found it interesting how kind of reading this fiction, I get quote f- f- fantasy, but like yeah. historical times has made me appreciate more. Like, oh, this is how the real world works as well. Oh, nice. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, I think like, um, yeah, stuff like politics and history and stuff. In school, I was just like, yeah, like, why would I care about this thing? This is so irrelevant. But actually now it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think, like, when I was listening to this uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self on Audible, I think, like, the way we were taught history in school was just a bit dumb because it yeah. was just, like, pointless memorization of dates yeah, and who cares what happened in 1066. And... Yeah, all that kind of stuff. But a question like, you know, uh, I'm a woman trapped inside a man's body. How did that yeah. thing come to be a common truth intuitively? Yeah. Yeah. That's, like, really interesting. It's like, oh. Yeah. And then he's mentioning all these other, like, philosophers and sociologists and historians. And I'm like, oh, actually, I, I, I want to learn yeah, 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 how we exactly. got to this yeah. point yeah. because it feels relevant. Yeah. Whereas Mott and Bailey Castle, that the feudal systems did in, like, 1066, yeah. it's all just completely pointless. Yeah, I, th- I think the issue with history, and I've probably said this many times in the pod at school, was that it felt very disconnected. It was like, they just, like, plopped you in the middle of nowhere in the human timeline and, like, here, you now, you now need to care about, like, Mott and Bailey Castles, bro. Mm. Um Anyway, I'll carry on a little bit and then we'll stop. Um, so yeah, the an, another like great like sort of term um, 
that he, I, I don't know if he coined this, uh, maybe someone else coined it. Um, anyway, it's an interesting highlight here is, um, this is from a guy called Reef, who's one of the guys he mentions with regards to like, these these are three important like thinkers and writers about modernity. Um, so Reef says, a culture survives principally by the power of its institutions to bind and loose men in the conduct of their affairs with reasons which sink so deep into the self that they become commonly and implicitly understood. So like the 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 way like the way cultures survive is by like making things really obvious. Not making things really obvious is by like you know like if if the government was just like just tomorrow decided like hey we're going to start telling people that like um I don't know that like we're going to just start telling people that like alcohol is bad or something right like it's not going to work like the the power of a culture is in is in the things that it like the things that it, the, the the sort of the citizens kind of just implicitly understand right it's not like yeah it's it's that that's kind of where, where the power of a culture comes from it's it's not from mm -hmm. like top down things that like someone is saying um it's from ideas that like take an intuitive implicit hold on you um that just that don't need an explanation basically yeah that's that's good that's good. Okay, so okay, so he talks about psychological man and expressive individualism. Now, expressive individualism is like the key thing, like the the like the way we think about the modern self is what he what he terms expressive individualism. So Reef describes the outward direction of um, yeah. So this Reef guy talks about like historically culture has been something that's directed outwards. Um, it is in communal activities that individuals find their true selves. Um, the true self in traditional cultures is therefore something that is given and learned, not something that the individual creates for himself. Um, and so Reef describes the outward direction of traditional culture as follows. Culture is another name for a design of motives directing the self outward towards those communal purposes in, in which alone the self can be realized and satisfied. And that, that's end, end quote from Reef. And now this is back to Carl Truman. This is an important point. Culture directs individuals outwards. It is greater than, prior to, and formative of the individual. So this is like a, you know, like when we think about like, when we think about the self, like we, we inherently think of it as like an inward thing because we are all expressive individualists. Like we have, we have like grown up in this water. He himself, you know, has grown up in this water. And he basically says like, look, whether we like it or not, like he's, he's an old guy, like he's like 50 or something. He's like, look, whether we like it or not, you, me, all of us, are the self this is our conception of the self um and it's very like inward sort of uh inward focused so um indeed in characterizing the modern age as that of psychological man um so he, he used yeah i think expressive individualism psychological man uh he uses the term therapeutic in an, in an interesting way which kind of relates to kind of the inner inner you know individual psychology right so he says in characterizing the modern age as that of psychological man, Reef makes a point very similar to that of Charles Taylor in his understanding of the human self, that psychological categories and an inward focus are the hallmarks of being a modern person, right? Psychological categories and, and this inward focus, this is like, mm. when, you're, when, when you're trying to th think about, okay, like, what is modernity? Like, wh what are modern people like compared to people before? This, this is like one unique, important thing. The what, is, what, what does it mean by psychological categories? Um... It means like, I don't know, I, I, 
I w- yeah, I wouldn't be able to like def- like t- tell you like specifically what I mean. But like, I think it's kind of this inward focus. Um, this is what uh, so this Charles Taylor guy coined expressive individualism, that each of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Um, psychological categories, I think, um, yeah, I think just like generally like putting ourselves in these like... And, he, and he's saying that this is... Because the I guess the traditional uh, distinction here would be sort of Eastern cultures are more collectivist and Western cultures are more individualistic. Is he kind of... Is he just talking about in the West or is he saying basically the whole world broadly no, I mean, thinks in these sorts of sorts of terms? Um, I think definitely, I, I think he's saying the whole world broadly, right? Like mm. I think modernity has kind of reached far and wide. Um, but he's saying that like in, in the West, like a few hundred years ago, you know, we, it wasn't the age of psychological man. It wasn't the age of expressive individualism. Mm. Um, right. Take, take for example, the, uh, yeah, the, the, the shift to psychological man and to expressive individualism is far-reaching in its implications, as I argue in future chapters. Um, Taylor, for example, rightly sees it as underpinning the consumer revolution that took place after the Second World War. Uh, take, for example, the issue of job satisfaction, something that is significant for most adults. My grandfather left school at 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham, the industrial heartland of England. If he had been asked if he found satisfaction in his work... There is a distinct possibility he would not even have understood the question, given that it really reflects the concerns of psychological man's world to which he did not belong. Mm. Right? Like this whole job satisfaction thing he's saying is like this is like a you know this is a preoccupation of psychological man. Right? Go back to his grandfather's time. He's twenty years old. He's in the metal factory in Birmingham. You ask him like, "Are you satisfied with your job?" He's he's saying there's a good chance he wouldn't really know what you mean. Like, what do you mean am I satisfied with my job? Right? Um, but if he did understand, he would probably have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet. If it did so, then yes, he would have affirmed that his job satisfied him. Um, his needs were those of his family, and in enable him, enabling him to meet them, his work gave him satisfaction. My grandfather was, if anything, a Reefian economic man, who's, uh, so before psychological man was economic man in this like theory, right? Um, he was an economic man whose economic production, the results of that for others, or his family were key to his sense of self. If I am asked the same question, my instinct is to talk about the pleasure that teaching gives me. Uh, this guy's an academic. Um, about the sense of personal fulfillment I feel when a student learns a new idea or becomes excited about some concept. Um, the difference is stark. For my grandfather, job, job satisfaction was empirical, outwardly directed, and unrelated to his psychological state. For members of mine and subsequent generations, the issue of feeling is central. <coughs> Sorry, can you just get me to watch? I think that's a pretty interesting point. because like, That's a good point, yeah. I like that. I yeah, I'd never, yeah, I'd never really dwelled on that. Is, uh, is, is, is there a pre-economic man in this analysis? I'm curious. Um, yeah, I think there is. Hmm. Uh, I, I can't remember. But I have to like, scroll a lot more. In short, the basic thrust of much modern thinking serves to shatter the idea of the individual as one whose best interests are served by being educated to conform to the canons and protocols of society. Um, so basically, like modern thinking, like shatters this idea that like um, it's in our best interests to like conform to society, um, and that is the intellectual foundation for the first reversal, whereby therapy ceases to serve the purpose of socializing an individual. Um, instead, it seeks to protect the individual from the kind of harmful neuroses that society itself creates through its smothering of the individual's ability to, to simply be herself. Um, so I think he talks about a few like, kind of like reversals. Um, yeah, so there was a there was someone called Rousseau back in the day, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the idea, I'll stop reading highlights, but 
the idea of like what it means to be authentic, I think is quite central to all of this. Um, and when we, when we think about like, yeah, I think the idea of what it means to be authentic is probably like a very modern idea. But when we think about it, it's very like self-directed. There's a sense that there is this like inward true self of mine. There's this inward authentic self and the society is a corrupting factor on that, right? Like society, um, yeah. Don't like, listen to what society like, tells you. It biases you. It yeah. like oppresses you. It like like it puts you in boxes. It like makes you conform. And it's like it's like reducing your authenticity, right? Uh, and this idea apparently first began with some with someone called Jean Jacques Rousseau, whose whole like shtick was that like society is stopping individuals from like living their best lives, being their true selves. Society is stopping people from being authentic. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, okay, yeah, so, let me, actually, let me just read this. Reef sees two historic reversals under, un, underlying this new world of psychological man. The first is a transformation of the understanding of therapy. Traditionally, the role of the therapist in any given culture was to enable the patient to grasp the nature of the community to which he belonged. So, in a religious world, the task of the religious therapist, the priest, was to train individuals in the rituals, the language, um, the doctrines and the symbols of the church. Um, these are things that promote commitment to the community, which is prior to and more important than any particular individual. This view depends on an understanding of the wider community as a positive good for those individuals who constitute it. So previously, like the wider community was seen as like this good force that like kind of guides you, is like you know sets you right. Right. That, as I note in parts two and three, is an idea that has come under vigorous criticism, beginning in the 18th century with Jean-Jacques Rousseau who regarded the community as a hindrance to the full expression of the authentic individual, a point picked up and given artistic expression by the romantics. He talks about kind of the sort of romantic period of art, kind of being about the same idea that like society is like a hindrance to like the individual authenticity. Um, and Freud, Freud is also like super into the same idea. In Freud, Reef's intellectual source and, him, and himself an admirer of Rousseau, so Freud, Freud big fan of Rousseau, um, the notion of the community as a good is also placed under under pressure and significantly qualified. A charitable reading of his cultural theory allows that the repressed community we have is at best merely preferable um, to the bloodthirsty chaos that, chaos that the alternative offers. Um, so like, you know, some sense of community and shared values, whatever, is like a necessary evil almost because like we'd have nothing without it, but like it's kind of not a good thing, you know. Um, for Marx and for Nietzsche, though for very different reasons, the present community is one that needs to be overthrown in order for humanity to reach its full potential. Um, so, so, so. In short, the basic thrust of much modern thinking serves to shatter this idea of the individual as one whose best interests are served by the community and its protocols and stuff like that. Um, and that is the intellectual foundation for the first reversal whereby therapy ceases to serve the purpose of socializing an individual. Um, instead, it seeks to protect the individual from the kind of harmful neuroses that society itself creates through its smothering of the individual's ability to simply be themselves. Um, the ancient, um, and he talks about uh, another reversal. Um, this then leads to the second reversal. In the worlds of political, religious, and economic man, commitment was outwardly directed to those communal beliefs and practices. The ancient Athenian was committed to the assembly, uh, the medieval Christian to his church, the 20th century factor worker to his trade union and working man's club. All of them found their purpose and well-being by being committed to something outside themselves. In the world of psychological man, however, the commitment is first and foremost to the self and is inwardly directed. Thus, the order is re reversed. Outward institutions become, in effect, the servants of the individual and her sense of inner well-being. Um, for such selves in such a world, institutions such as schools and churches are places where one goes to perform, not to be formed. Or perhaps better, where one goes to be formed by performing. You know, you, you kind of... You're not kind of 
perform. You, know, you, you don't want to be formed by these places. You go there to perform your individually, your, your, yourself, to perform your authenticity. Um, it comes from within, not from like from, from the outside. Uh, and so at the end of this like section of the book, he says, and so I arrive at two, two key questions that need to be answered. Um, why is it important that identity is publicly acknowledged? Uh, and why is it that the public acknowledgement of some identities is compulsory and of others is forbidden? Um, and so, yeah, you know, the, this idea of identity, right? Like, you know, it, your sort of sexual identity, your like religious identity, your sort of racial, social identity, right? We, we like psychological man, expressive individualists, we have this need for identity to be acknowledged by other people, right? Like it needs to be validated, acknowledged. Like other people have to agree that like this, hey, this, this is me. This, this, these things I'm saying, this is me. Like we, we need that external acknowledgement of that thing. So he's kind of asking like, why, why is it important to us that our identity is publicly acknowledged? Um, the era of psychological man therefore requires changes in the culture and its institutions, practices, and beliefs that affect everyone. They all need to adapt to reflect a therapeutic mentality that focuses on the psychological well-being of the individual. Um, and Reef calls this societal characteristic the analytic attitude. Uh, okay, I feel I'm a bit lost. I don't understand what this therapeutic thing means. Uh, <clears throat> or should we save it for another time? <laughs> Yeah, let's save it for another time. But uh, yeah, I think I think like the, the core ideas we've talked about so far mm. are first that like first that like the th the things we believe and are the believe and uh, the things uh, the social imaginary mm. is is the fantasy world we're, 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 we're all bought into. It's the set of like ideas, beliefs, whatever, like the way we do things. That's the social imaginary, right? And there's no there's no tenets of the social imaginary. There's no like um, you know there's no there's no creed of modernity which has like the articles listed of like you know we believe this we believe that you know there's nothing like this right um it's just a set of it's an amorphous blob of intuitive ideas that are just in us they're in the water we've kind of grown up with them they're developing but like if you ask someone to point out like what what they believe and why they believe, you know we, we we for the most part cannot do this the social imaginary it's just like there we're all swimming in it and you know, we're not like intellectually defining all of these things for ourselves, right? Um, and so, you know, how did we get here in our current social imaginary where a statement like, I am a woman trapped in a man's body makes perfect sense to us, but you go back even one generation, it wouldn't have made any sense to them at all, right? How, how, how has that evolution happened where something that seems so obvious and almost intuitive to people today uh, was even like, a couple of decades ago, not mm. not at all that way, right? And so, like, how do we yeah. get there? His point is, this is not something that's just happened over the past 20 years. It's something that's been coming for the past 200 years of a line of sort of ideas, thinkers, mm. um, influential people that have got us to a point where now the, the sort of uh, the flywheel has been, like, um, spinning. Yeah. Like, it started 200 years ago, starts really slowly, slowly, gets faster, faster, faster. And then over the past 20 years, you can just make this massive shift where, like, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, this feels similar to... So um, in uh, Father William McCaskill's book, What We Owe the Future, <laughs> he uh, kind of talks about the idea of slavery and the sort of conundrum of slavery in that broadly... Uh, everyone was okay with it back in the day. Everyone was okay with it back in the day. And, and the philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and stuff and the yeah, people we they're, admire... They're obsessed with fathers. morality and what's right and wrong. Exactly. And none of these guys had even the slightest inkling that slavery equals bad. Yeah. And yet now it's like 
slavery is bad is so axiomatic that it's like yeah. if you invoke slavery in any argument what are you so what's are you saying slavery is good it's just a way yeah. of shutting down any kind of argument because obviously slavery is bad and he basically points out that like his his, his argument in the book is that uh the abolition of slavery was not necessarily a moral inevitability and actually if you go back like 500 years you you can actually somewhat trace the individuals who started movements this guy in the 17 whatever the quaker movement he would like lie down like on the door on the doorstep of like quaker meetings so that people would have to literally walk over his body to get in as like a sign of like look you guys are claiming to be all peaceful and stuff but you still have slaves like what's going on yeah i'm gonna make you walk over my body just to make a point yeah. and then like he dies he's considered a heretic no one no one cares like 50 years later something happens and, no, and then this other person mm. comes along and then this other thing happens and this other thing happens yeah, to the point yeah. where the flywheel turns and then all, all almost all at once all of a sudden it's like whoa it's like slave? oh yeah slavery's bad guys mm. yeah. um yeah. and 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 so i think it's it's interesting from that so like i i, I first came across this idea in uh slavery in islam mm. slavery yeah. and islam like whatever that, yeah, that yeah, book yeah. is yeah johnson brown great book. yeah and I, book. I hadn't Kindle. quite considered that beforehand of like yeah, shit. Why? Why did all of the great thinkers of our time think that slavery was totally okay, mm. and all of a sudden we decided it wasn't? Like, it's kind of interesting to trace yeah, the ideas yeah. back there. Um, anyway, we'll stop yeah. there. Um, but yeah, great book, Rise and Triumph of Modern Maybe we can carry on, carry on next time. I think you should keep up with the audiobook. Okay, fine. Um, there, there's a good, there's a good sort of summary talk slash lecture by the guy on YouTube. Um, if you search for Carl Truman, Modern Self, or something, there's a few like one hour talks of his. Um, Excellent. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.